The story of life usually begins at birth, but here we are going to start at the end. Well, actually, after the end. What do we mean? We want to start by looking at historical figures' legacies. How does society remember a person? And how does that memory shape our understanding of the past, and perhaps, more importantly, the present? I'm Justina. And I'm Jamie. And this is The Stories We Tell, a podcast that analyzes historical figures and how the stories we have told about them shape the larger histories about the creation of nations, the identity of their citizens, and so much more. Ultimately, history is a collection of interpretations made by historians. Here, we will look at how those interpretations created memory, one legacy at a time. All right, so um, I'm starting off today with a quote. Right. All right. So as the immortal Washington lives, endeared and engraven on the hearts of every white in America, never to be forgotten in time, even such is the immortal Philip, honored as held in memory by the degraded but yet grateful descendants who appreciate his character. So will every patriot, especially in this enlightened age, respect the rude yet all-accomplished son of the forest that died a martyr to his cause, thought unsuccessful yet as glorious as the American Revolution. Where, then, shall we place the hero of the wilderness? These words are an excerpt from a speech entitled Eulogy on King Philip. While the Native American orator acknowledges that many did not remember the Native American headman, Philip, and perhaps he can be an episode at some point, um, this episode is dedicated to the man who delivered the eulogy, William Apis. Apis was a member of the Pequot tribe and gained fame as a writer and orator. While Apis is virtually unknown today, he was a familiar figure in America during the 1830s. Today, we will explore Apis's life, how he was forgotten, and what this amnesia demonstrates to us about the stories we tell. Ooh, I like that. (laughs) Good good use of the word amnesia. Uh, So, do you know anything about William Apis? I know nothing. I'm like one of those people you described that knows nothing. But you know what's so I really liked about what you just said is that I think there's a lot of people in history that are well known during their time that we have completely lost. I was actually just teaching someone last week who I would like to do an episode on in the future who exactly the same um, concept and was almost completely lost to time. And it's something that... I think is more common than we would like to think, which is interesting and kind of exciting. There's still people, you know, to, to discover and learn about. Absolutely. Absolutely. Um, and I do think it is interesting about, you know, the, 
interrogating the process of how these stories, I don't know, get, get law, get mislaid, um, if you will, over, over time and, and, you know, why that's happening. So, um, also how are they discovered? Like, you know, you know, where are they kind of lying? Like where are their memories lying in the archives or in people's attics or, you know what I mean? And then how can, how do we find them? I love that story as well. Yes, absolutely. Yeah, I think that, and I think though, like for larger, some of the larger figures, somebody like Apis or whatever, I mean, it's not so much of kind of finding like an old photo album or something like that, as much as it's about conversations that we have at a at a societal le- level, you know, whatever the rhetoric is in the country at any given time can bring some of these figures to light. So Ooh, very well said. Yes, I agree. Right. It's because it's about the stories we tell. Yes. 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 So William Apis was born January 31st, 1798 in Coleraine, Massachusetts. Okay. His parents were both poor laborers um, who, like most people, of a lower socioeconomic status or class. They, they moved around a lot. They were a kind of transient family. Um, they traveled to different places in search of work. That's why they were relocating all the time. Apis's father was a shoemaker and his mother worked as a domestic servant. Shortly after Apis's birth, his parents moved to Colchester, which is, um, within the kind of ancestral homelands of the Pequot people in southeastern Connecticut. After about three years, the couple separated. It's very we don't know exactly what the how their relationship worked out, but it does appear that they reconciled on a number of occasions. But anyway, the point here is is that it wasn't really a stable family life that that Apis experienced as a child. Apis and his siblings were left with their maternal grandparents, and Apis actually didn't see his mother for almost 20 years. Oh, wow. That's really interesting. Mm-hmm. It seems that he actually had more interactions as he kind of grew up with his father than he did with his mother. Apis's life with his grandparents was traumatic. Uh, he and his siblings often went hungry, and they were not provided with clothing to really protect them from the elements. You know, winters get pretty cold in New England. On one occasion, in a drunken rage, Apis's grandmother almost beat him to death while his grandfather urged her on. Oh, my God. Oh, my God. Wow. Mm -hmm. That's, I mean, that is, even the fact that we have evidence of that is really interesting. Well, the evidence for that is Apis's own autobiography. Okay. So his his own memory of his childhood. Wow. Mm -hmm. That's fascinating. Okay. I'm sorry for interrupting. No, you're good. Uh, An uncle of Apis's who also lived in the home is actually the person that intervened to save his life. And after that, the uncle petitioned and received medical assistance for Apis as well as his removal from the home. It took Apis nearly a year to recover. Oh, my God. From the beating. Oh, that's my how, God. That's how severe it was. Um, it's interesting. So it's also this, It. I mean, there's, I mean, in this sense, it's almost like a history, too, of, like, I know this is a familial, you know, connections, but, you know, what happens when children are unable to live with parents and what 
I mean, that's a history in itself, too, that he's kind of contributing to, right? The history of the foster care system, but also what happened before that system existed. It's kind of interesting. Anyway. Well, I think it's, I mean, Apis's story absolutely fits into other stories of the colonial impacts on Native people. Um, the kind of separation of children from their parents mm-hmm. is kind of, uh, I mean, it very much is a colonial story. The alcoholism of his, of his grandmother, legacies of colonialism. And actually, he wasn't really put in foster care. He was, he was bound out, which it was an experience that Native people in New England had been had been kind of living through since the moment of contact. Because we tend, when we tend, when we think about New England, we tend to not think about bondage and unfreedom. When we think about New England, we tend to think about, you know, New England was the destination on the Underground Railroad, and that's where people went to be, to be free. But there is a history in New England of the, of enslavement, and particularly the enslavement of Native people. Oh, wow. Yeah. And so for early, like the, the pilgrims and Puritans and people like that that came over, the laws that they operated under were that enemies taken during a just war essentially could have their freedom taken from them. Um, and so these individuals that were taken captive during wars, you know, the Pequot Wars, for example, oftentimes became indentured servants in New England households. And the way that these indenturement contracts worked, it gave all the control and power to the contract holder. And so we don't need to think about like, oh, there was a contract and the contract existed for a specified period of time. And then once that specified period of time was done, then the person was free because most of the time these contracts were written in such a way that they stated that if a person kind of broke the rules or acted in a particular sort of way, then they could get years added on to their contract. But you know, all of that was subjective, right? The the contract holder was the person who made these decisions about whether or not the indentured servant had broken the terms of the contract. And contracts could were frequently sold or passed on to other people. And then, you know, those people altered them oftentimes because the native people that were the kind of quote unquote indentured servants, you know, they didn't have access to any sort of legal representation. Most of the time, you know, they're not reading, not able to read and write English. And so there's no, they can't advocate for themselves. All this to say that ultimately what happens to Apis is very similar to what had been happening for generations in New England, where you have a Native person that goes to live with a family, but to work for them and under specific terms, if that makes sense. Yeah, absolutely. That's super interesting. I uh, I was not fully aware of a lot of that history. So that's a really, thank you for laying that out. That's really fascinating. And the contracts are so clearly a huge disparity in power, right? That's fascinating. Oh, for sure. Yeah. For Massive sure. disparity in power, yeah. Yeah, it's um 
you know, the first slave law, slave laws that go on the books actually go on the books in New England. And most people don't think about that because they think about the South. 1662 Virginia colony. That's what I always think of is, Mm -hmm. you know, the decision to make slaves, uh, any child born to a slave is a slave, right? And so that's where I'm, I usually kind of date it back to. So yeah, that's a great point. That's a great point. Yeah, I think it's interesting, too, when you teach the history of slavery. So frequently students are unaware of the fact that slavery also existed in the North because it's been kind of I think it's a aspect of the narrative that's not discussed as much. Right. And and also slavery has been then attached to the region of the South so significantly through, I think, a lot of the, you know, the memory of Civil War. But it's not the full story for sure, for sure. I mean, this kind of gets into the whole theme of the podcast about the the stories we tell, you know, a lot of the focus on like what we think about when we think of New England has so much to do with how New England came to represent stories we just told about America in general, you know, mm-hmm. the yep. city on a hill and, and all of that. And so those sorts of stories don't have the same gravity or the, they don't hit the same, I guess, if you kind of take into consideration the the fact that, that slavery and, and unfreedom and all of these other sort of messy things that we assume just happened in one specific geographic region were also happening there. Absolutely. I completely agree. Um, and also it challenges, particularly if we think about Apis's situation, um, because 19th century, right? So we're not even talking about the 1600s. Right. When the colonies right. were initially founded in New England. But the fact that that is a, a pattern that is established then that continues on into the 19th century. And in the 19th century, when we really do, when we think about New England, we think about abolitionism. We think about, again, is the destination on the Underground Railroad and all of that. And I I think as we kind of talk a little bit more about Apis's life, it really does challenge some of those kind of overgeneralized things that we think about when we think New England. So anyway, all right. So his uncle intervenes, gets him some medical assistance. It takes Apis a year to heal from his injuries. And then he is bound out to a local family. So he's not adopted. He's not, you know, taken in. Um, This is a contractual arrangement. Apis lived with the family for approximately seven years. Their name was the Furmans case anybody cares. Um, During that time, he did receive some formal schooling. um, And he also developed a close relationship with Mrs. Furman. The couple didn't have any children. And so it does appear that for her, she did kind of take on much more of like a, a more maternal sort of relationship with him. And he speaks in his autobiography, he speaks really fondly of her and did have some pleasant, positive years in that situation because of the relationship that he had with Mrs. Furman. But unfortunately, the same cannot be said for his relationship with Mr. Furman, who flogged him on a number of occasions. Again, highlighting the fact that this was not an adoption situation. This was um, this was a contractual situation. Apis broke the rules of the contract, and just as you would do with any servant, he was punished. Um, after one such incident, 
Apis was encouraged by another boy. Not entirely sure if he was another bound person in this situation. But anyway, he was encouraged by another boy close to his age to run away. Mr. Furman caught him while he was packing his clothes and sold Apis's indenturement to another local man called Judge William Hillhouse. So again, like I was saying before, um, these contracts were often sold on to other people, again, complicating the nature of the terms and and all of that. So Apis was only with Hill House for about six months before his indenturement was sold again. Oh, wow. To a family in New London, Connecticut. So just to highlight something for a moment, at this point, okay, he was indentured by the Furmans. The Furmans sell the indenturement to Hill House. Hill House sells the indenturement again. So we've got three different experiences. Apis is only 11. Oh, my gosh. I was actually trying to remember what year he was born. I was trying to figure out how old he was. Wow. That's wild. He's not even a teenager yet. Wow. Mm -mm. No. And the life experiences that he's already had. I mean, that also changes the way you understand the beating that he endured, right? He was a little boy. Oh, yeah. Yeah, he's tiny. Wow. Wow. Okay. Okay. Thank you for, you know, bringing that up because it is, it makes, it changes the way you understand the experience. Yeah. So Apis's indenturement is sold on again. And it is around this time that he became attracted to Methodist meetings. Okay. um, That were taking place nearby. And he experienced a religious conversion in March of 1813. Is this corresponding with the Second Great Awakening? Absolutely. Yay! Good. Yeah. I still know some of my history. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, absolutely. You might think that the family would be in favor of this, but no. Oh, wow. Okay. Please tell me why. They were Congregationalists. Okay. Okay. And very opposed to Methodists and the charismatic practices within the Second Great Awakening. Like we know, right, all the things we know about the Second Great Awakening, why people were so attracted to it were because they, they were, you know, emotionally charged services. The other thing that was really attractive to some people about the religious services within the Second Great Awakening were the fact that they were very democratic, Right. It didn't matter if you were man, woman, white, uh, not white, poor, wealthy, like all of these kind of gender, racial, class categories that existed in the 19th century didn't apply when you were at these tent meetings during the Second Great Awakening. So that attracted a lot of people. It also, for kind of more establishment type folks, you know, mm-hmm. caused them to really hate them. And yeah. so this family, as you, you might imagine, because they have an indentured native person in their house, were more establishment type people and therefore not a fan of all of the mixing going on at these um, meetings within the Second Great Awakening. Second um, Great Awakening is so fascinating. I know I'm a 20th centuryist, so I don't get to kind of engage with it, but it that much, but it is such an interesting time period. And I think the egalitarianism that was kind of existing is such a unique component of it that makes that would of course make it, you know, really attractive to so many people. So fascinating. Yeah, and I think people were looking for 
outlets. You know, it was a, yeah. for a lot of people, it was a really uncertain time because they were dealing with a number of different oppressions. Obviously, racial oppressions were something that were prolific, but also, you know, this is the time of the market revolution, right? Yes. Major, major economic change is happening. And a lot of people are finding themselves in situations where it's just very, where it's very difficult. People that had, you know, kind of been more artisan type people or relied on arts and crafts, right? Those, the market around all of that is, is changing. Cottage markets don't really exist in the same sort of way anymore. And it's just a very uncertain time. And so that's why religion in many cases provided an outlet for people you know, a way to kind of deal and cope with all of the things that were, that were happening. So, and it's not even, it's not even like Apis got all wrapped up in those, those kingdom of Matthias people, right? Right. Or even like the shakers, right? I mean, this is the birth of the shakers. This is a time where all these utopian communities. Yeah. Like moving away from society to probably because of the very reasons that you explained, right? That they said, and I mean, the shakers, I think are probably a great example, right? Because they're artisans, they're furniture builders, right? Mm -hmm. So fascinating. Yeah. So he's not, he's not going that deep into. No, he's not. It's not a utopian community that he's interested in joining. Uh, he has a religious conversion. He becomes a Methodist. And after this conversion, he quickly falls out of favor with his family. And I say his family. I shouldn't say it that way, right? The family that he was living with that had the, his contract. Um, and that relationship quickly became abusive. Okay. So specifically, Apis was forbidden to attend church services Methodist services, I should specify, and was beaten when he disobeyed. Wow. Okay. So Apis responded to this situation by running away. And to avoid capture, he went to New York City. Oh, this is a fun time in New York City history. This is a crazy time in New York City history. I'm sure you're going to talk about it a little, but as someone who I'm not, if you want to, go ahead. Oh, I, I I don't know if I'm prepped for it, but I just think, I mean, 19th century New York City is, whew, it's an interesting place. It's very dirty. <laughs> I always think of how bad it probably smells. But no, I think that I'm very excited to hear, but I do think it's a very interesting, maybe we could do an episode that looks more deeply at like the five points or something. But yeah, please take it away. We don't have to go deep into that, but I'm excited. When Apis heard that there was a $15 reward kind of a bounty for him. Um, Apis lied about his age and enlisted in a militia unit as a drummer boy to serve in the War of 1812. Oh, wow. Yeah, because just as a reminder, right, he um, had this religious conversion experience in March of 1813. And then that's when everything goes south and he runs away. So he enlists as a drummer boy because he's still quite young. Right. But Apis was soon forcibly converted into a regular infantryman. Okay. And so I said he was quite young. He's 15. Oh, wow. Okay. Okay. He was feeling homesick and wanted to go see his father. He was 
obviously and quite rightly upset with the kind of change in his his status or the terms of his enlistment. So keeping with a set pattern of behavior, Apis actually tries to desert. He was caught but not punished um, and went on to fight in a number of battles. And sometime in the summer of 1815, Apis released himself from the army. How do you do? How did he do that? <laughs> <laughs> That's not I, something I've heard about. Yeah, I know. I don't think I don't think that he that he it wasn't a case of desertion at this point. The war was over. Okay. Do you want to stay a career soldier or do you want to not do that? And I think it was I don't want to do that. Okay. Okay. Situation. Um, it was during his army service that he was exposed to alcohol, which unfortunately became a battle that he would fight for the rest of his life. Oh, um, okay. After he left the army, he resided in Canada among various different indigenous groups, but he began to feel homesick again. So he began his trek back to Connecticut in the spring of 1816. He stopped frequently along the way, basically just to kind of take whatever jobs he could to earn enough money to fund the next leg of the trip. According to his own autobiography, at one point he does lose sight of his objective and begins drinking again. But in the spring of 1817, he sobers up again, finds work, uh, what he called good clothes, and made his way to Colchester to unite with his family. For the following year or so, he stayed in the area, stayed sober, recommitted himself to religious pursuits, and was actually baptized in December of 1818. Okay. In 1819, he traveled to Colerain, and this is when he is united with his father. And just as a reminder, his father was a shoemaker, so he learns this trade from his dad. It may be possible that his parents were reconciled at this time also, but it's not entirely We're not entirely sure. Apis returned to Connecticut in 1821 and married a woman by the name of Mary Wood, who was a devout Methodist. And as you might imagine, perhaps they met at a meeting. Okay. As you do, right? Yeah. And he... Is she she a Native person? He described her... Oh, thank you. ...as, quote, a woman of nearly the same color as myself. Okay. But that's what we know. But like, what does that mean? Right. Don't know. But that is what we know. I mean, I guess she wasn't a white woman. Okay. Okay. So, but I I don't know because um, he doesn't identify her with any specific native nation or people or anything like that. But he does mention her color, which suggests that she's not a white woman. Okay. Apis, the Apis family now with his wife, Mary Wood Apis, moved around quite a bit and Apis held a number of different jobs. So it's, it's kind of interesting because you can see these patterns that continue to repeat themselves, right? The Apis's parents had it lived in a similar sort of way, right? Having to move around to take jobs that were available. In April of 1829, after the Methodist Episcopal Church refused to or- to ordain him, Apis was ordained as a minister in the Protestant Methodist Church. I'm not entirely sure what those 
doctrinal differences were. I imagine that the Protestant Methodist Church must have been more progressive. Right, because would he have been denied based on the fact, like that, his native status? Yeah, I think that's that's okay. uh, certainly what he thought. Also, in 1829, Apis published his autobiography, Son of the Forest. This is the first, the first autobiography written by an American Indian. Wow, no way. What year was that again? 1829. Okay. I'm just trying to think because, okay, I have a genuine question that I have no idea if it's the answer, right? This is also the time to a disingenuous question. I guess. Yes, that's true. Okay. So this is the time of abolitionists and slave narratives. Could this have been inspired by that? Or am I just trying to make connections where connection, you know, am I trying to do causation, you know, inappropriately, do you think? I don't know. I mean, I'd, I'd, I'd like to kind of it would be my preference to give Apis credit for wanting to write his own story because he wanted to write his own story. Okay. And how old is he at this point? He's still fairly young, right? Yeah, he's still very, I would have to do math. That's okay. But he's not in his late, he's not, you know, at the nearer, the, you know, later life. So he's writing about 30. He's about 30. Okay. Okay. 31, something like that. I mean, he's lived a lot of life for that age. Yeah. And I think one of the things that I think is really important is that, or significant. I should say, is that Apis actually wrote it. Okay. Okay. Yes. Because he, because of the formal schooling that he was able to obtain while he was a servant of various people, also what we assume would be his own efforts at edification, right? Because of his interest in pursuing, you know, wanting to be a minister, essentially, you know, you need to be able to read and speak and write in order to do that. So yeah, he learns to read and write English. And so he writes the autobiography. Black Hawk, trying to remember Black Hawk's autobiography. I can't remember. It's after Apis B18. I think it came out in the 1830s sometime. I don't remember off the top of my head. Who who do you think his intended audience was? Who was he hoping would read this? White people. Okay. Okay. It's a good simple answer. <laughs> <laughs> no, I that makes a lot of sense. I just wanted to you know I do what I can. Yeah. So Black Hawk's autobiography was written in 1833. So Apis okay. comes out in 1829. But again, to really kind of highlight Apis's accomplishment, Black Hawk's autobiography is is translated. He recounts events to a person that then writes it down and puts it in English. Whereas Apis, this is, he has complete control over what he's writing. Right. Um, Right. And so that's why I think it's, and actually, so I had initially assigned Black Hawk's autobiography in my survey classes, but I guess it was last year I switched to Apis because I just think so amazing to actually be able to to read this that was that was written. It didn't have to go so many of the sources that we have about historic Native people are through translators uh-huh. or interpreters or observations of people that don't, you know, culturally identify as native. And so it's just, it's just amazing to have Apis's words recorded by himself. Yeah, I completely agree. I recently had students read um, some of Zit Kalasaw's writing. Mm -hmm. And one of the things that just you just saying that made me think of about the fact that in both of those cases, I mean, he learned to write, read and write English, right? Because of 
his oppressive status, right? As an indentured servant, she similarly learned to read and write English because she was sent to an American or an Indian boarding school. Boarding school. Right. And so it's, it's also, I think, I don't know. I've been talking with about Zaykhalasa and the ways that her oppression actually allowed her to kind of engage in this activism in ways that if she hadn't been exposed to that kind of forms of American culture, she wouldn't have been able to do. And I, I don't know. I just think that's a, the irony is sad, but it very interesting. Yeah. After the publication of his autobiography, we don't really know a whole lot about what's going on with him um, until he arrives in Mashpee on Cape Cod in 1833. So Mashpee was the major surviving Indian town in Massachusetts at the time. Um, and while there, Apis gained regional and national notoriety. He involves himself in the long-standing struggle between the Mashpee and the white overseers that had been imposed on the Mashpee community. The three overseers leased out lands to neighboring white people, bound out the employment of native men, women, and children, and controlled who entered and actually lived in the town. In addition to the oppressive overseers, Mashpee natives were also upset that a non-Indian minister controlled their old Indian meeting house, so their church, um, and preached only to white people. So you have this native town, majority native people residing there. But in an ultra colonial example, you have four white men that are controlling every aspect of the way that day to day life is lived there. They're controlling the economics of it. They're controlling the religious practices of it. They're controlling who is and who is not a part of that community. So there are significant issues here about regarding sovereignty, you know, ignoring indigenous sovereignty, of course. Um, but also other issues that like maybe we could just classify as is racism, but it's it's more than that because it's depriving people of of their identity. Again, very colonial thing to do. Once Apis arrived, the Mashpee provided him with a home and fishing and wood rights. He assisted the community in creating two petitions. One went to the governor and the other to Harvard College. Harvard actually controlled the appointment of the minister. And so the these wood rights were a major issue because this, again, had a lot of implications for questions around sovereignty. It also had Im- implications to the economic health of the community. Community, um, because they, the question was, who had the right to harvest timber? Oh, wow. Okay. Um, and so obviously the white overseers thought that they did, and they didn't mind selling leases and things to other neighboring white people to allow them to come in and harvest timber. And then they wanted to control and oftentimes prevent native people from doing it. And so that was a major issue that APIS was involved in trying to to mediate. The petition to the governor was entitled, quote, the Indian Declaration of Independence. You gotta love Apis. For those for those of you listening, you should absolutely read Apis because he is oh it's really good stuff. It is really good stuff. Like the quote that I read at the very very beginning, he he had he has a strong voice. Um, yeah, it, definitely. It's, 
is good stuff. Um, so the Indian Declaration of Independence stated, quote, we as a tribe will rule ourselves and have the right to do so for all men are born free and equal, says the Constitution of the country. <laughs> I love it when it's so smart. It's so ingenious. It's just like, well, you said it. I'm just I just I just say, yeah, I agree. <laughs> Let me repeat your words back to you. It's so good. Yes, I could not agree with you more. It's so good. Yeah, APIS is great. Um, The second petition requested that APIS replace the current minister of the Mashpee Old Indian Meeting House. Again, he's an ordained minister, right? And so they want him instead of that old white guy. After a number of incidents, including Apis's arrest, the Mashpees won most of their demands. I mean, he's an activist. He I is love a 19th it. century activist. I love it. And so like a lot of activists, activists. he was arrested. Yes. Great. So the Mashpees little, won. Little civil disobedience, yes, right? right? Yes. Yes. The Mashpees won most of their demands. Um, in March 1834, they were granted the rights of township and self-governance, and they controlled the town until the 1960s. Wow. And by 1840, they had rid themselves of that minister they didn't want. Can, can I ask, as someone who's an ethno-historian, is this highly unusual? Is this like a exception that this sort of kind of moment of success existed during this time period? Or is this something that was, you know, a trend that was happening, maybe? I would say, so the 1830s is the decade of removal, right? Yeah, so exactly. I think, I think getting a recognition of sovereignty in this way in the 1830s is very much against the grain of what is happening on a broader national level in terms of federal Indian policy. Amazing, right? Or even local Indian policy. The Indian Removal Act passes in 1830, but all the Indian Removal Act did was grant the executive the authority to engage in treaties that exchange lands in the East for lands in the West. A lot of people think that the Indian Removal Act was some sort of decree that said, all right, everybody out. But that's not it. That's not the case at all. And so then the question becomes, well, if all it did was grant the executive authority, then you know, why were Native nations willing to engage in these these treaties? And I don't want to overgeneralize here because mm-hmm. every... Every nation had a different experience within this kind of period of removal. But for a lot of groups that did ultimately decide that they would sign treaties and relocate, it was because of local harassment and local pressure and just people, their neighbors making their lives absolutely miserable. It's wild. That's crazy. Yeah. Um, That makes a lot of sense. So, yeah, this is this is very different. Amazing. Yeah. All right. So they did get rid of that minister, but Apis did not replace him. Okay. He appears to have left Mashpee in 1838, so before that final change took place. We're not exactly sure why. It could be debt. It could be that the local white community wanted to separate him from the Mashpee community. He was, hopefully you'll appreciate this, right? He would have been considered an outside agitator. (laughs) (laughs) it's good it's good (laughs) 
<laughs> um, all of these events in Mashpee featured prominently in regional and some national papers. And as a result, Americans became familiar with William Apis. However, Apis's fame was short-lived. In 1839, Apis was back in New York City, where on April 10th, he died. Oh, wow. Oh my gosh, that was an abrupt, that came to an abrupt place. Yes. Okay, go ahead. Go ahead. Um, the cause of his death is not clear. Um, he had been boarding his second wife and we don't, it's no clue okay. what had happened to Mary Wood and, and all of that, but it, it does appear that this woman at this point is his second wife. They had been um, at a lodging house for about four months in Manhattan in a respectable but declining neighborhood. Okay. Um, and what year is that again? This is the 18... 1839. Okay. Okay. So, um, and you maybe can speak to this better than I can, but um, it was the area around Washington Street. Okay, so it's, I think that's Lower Manhattan, which makes sense because, I mean, so the way that New York grew is from Lower Manhattan continued to grow upward, and so that, that does make sense. Um, by the time we get to the 1830s, this area around Washington Street where the Apuses resided was known for its transient, multiracial, and working-class residents. So I think it's kind of going into this idea around, so the Five Points neighborhood is where now is like Chinatown, Little Italy area, but that was the area where a lot of immigrants actually historically, but now also today, um, kind of resided. And it was actually, this is such a crazy kind of New York City history detail, but Washington Street, I think is a bit kind of uh, more downtown than that, but that Five points was historically a cheap place to live because it had once been a like a lake <laughs> that they filled in and so whenever it rained like the houses would literally sink so the real estate was pretty cheap in that area but so i'm wondering if that that kind of neighborhood was starting to kind of grow and seep into where he was living maybe because um from what i read it was still considered respectable so okay. it it wasn't like a slum or anything like that. It was a respectable boarding house, but it was the, the neighborhood was in this period of transition, transition. like declining in terms. Yeah. So if we consider Apis's meteoric rise during the 1830s, it is rather jarring to consider how quickly he fell into obscurity. Evidence of this can even be seen in the reporting of his death. Newspapers up and down the East Coast, particularly in New York and New England, reported his death. But the publicity was not on Apis, but rather on the circumstances. So not on him as the person, but rather the circumstances around his death. Specifically, the fact that a botanic medicine had been prescribed to him shortly before his death. Are you implying that he was potentially poisoned? I'm not implying that. <laughs> I'm referring to, I am referring to media coverage at the time. Okay, fair. <laughs> I imply the, the I, media coverage. I imply nothing. Okay, um, so the media coverage was implying a potential poisoning. There was tension between what we would consider traditional Western medicine doctors and botanic physicians in major Eastern cities like New York and Philadelphia. And headlines reading Lobelia again provided fodder 
for those that viewed botanical medicine as an unregulated danger to the public. Lobelia is beautiful. It's purple. It's pretty. Is a homeopathic drug that is used in treating asthma, bronchitis, and other pulmonary issues. Um, the idea is that Lobelia's chemicals thin mucus, making it easier to cough up. But most Western trained physicians still consider it dangerous. Oh, fascinating. Mm-hmm. Anyway. The point here is that most of the reporting focused on this debate between correct medical practices, not that this incredible orator, writer, and activist died. Oh, wow. So it was fast that his kind of notoriety was essentially forgotten. Yeah. Apis's wife added to the mystery because she reported that the day before his death, Apis had visited visited a traditional doctor um, who prescribed him some medicine that at first seemed to improve his condition, but the next day he couldn't get out of bed. Oh, wow. It was after this turn that the family called in a homeopathic physician. So yeah, most of the headlines really focused on the fact that he had taken or somebody had prescribed him lobelia shortly before his death. So Apis was only 41. When he died. Um, Can I I say one quick thing? I think as someone who does study a little bit around medicine, it's interesting too. I mean, you're also speaking, his death is speaking to this debate around, you know, the formalization of medicine, which is really, I mean, this is still very early in that. um, But it's also a way that, you know, male-centric medical doctors, which were not well trained at this point in this time period, are trying to challenge the legitimacy of, and my work more kind of centers on the ways that they're challenging the legitimacy of typically midwives, so people who are working in more reproductive health. But we can also see how they're challenging the legitimacy of people who are practicing more um, indigenous forms of medicine, right? Um, so Apis was 41 at the time of his death, so very very young. Um, so young. It's just crazy to think about because just two years earlier, he was leading, he was a leading Native American intellectual. He was a champion of human rights and Native sovereignty. He published more than any other Native writer before the 20th century. Oh my gosh. In 41 years. Yeah. Wow. And he did it in less than a decade. Right. I mean, because he also, you know, had a horrifically traumatic childhood, right? That is, I mean, such a productive person. Yeah. So in less than a decade, he writes more than any other Native person before the 20th century. And the the, the thing that is, you know, crazy is that while we remember names like Frederick Douglass, William Lloyd Garrison, and Margaret Fuller, we don't remember William Apis. Yeah. Fascinating. Fascinating. And thus ended the lesson. So good. I feel I'm very excited now. I need to go look at him up, maybe incorporate him into a course or something. But it's amazing. Oh, I can send you I can send you some Oh my goodness. He is <laughs> so good because he calls people out on their hypocrisy and you amazing. know how I feel about hypocrisy. <laughs> yes, I and, do. And so <laughs> he and he because I think that the thing that I love so much about his writings, they're so powerful is the fact that because he is a trained minister, self-trained, but a trained minister, he is constantly using the Bible 
mm. against these professed Christian people. Well, and that's also such a, um, I mean, that's a theme, I think, in a lot of, I mean, my brain is going to 20th century activists, particularly. I mean, Martin Luther King did the same thing, right? Oh, yeah. Yeah, yeah, yeah. But he, Amazing. I mean, but Apis is doing it in the... So much earlier. Early 19th century. And I think, I don't know, we don't, we just don't know as much about it our native activists and we absolutely do not. You're a hundred percent correct. And he's, he's doing it and he is doing it with tremendous effect. And I think because he has, I can't remember if it's in the autobiography or if it's, I think it's actually in the eulogy. I would have loved to have heard him deliver it in person. Cause I think like very a la King, you know, he's a minister. So he's going to have that kind of, Hmm preacher delivery, you know, Mm -hmm. but in the eulogy on King Philip, he talked about, again, calling people out on their hypocrisy about highlighting how generous native people were in these kind of initial contact situations and how they had no understanding of the Bible then. Oh, that's such a, wow. Yeah. And so what does that say then about you who acted in a very unchristian like manner? Like, okay, fine. You say we acted like savages, but we didn't know the Bible. What does that say about you who knew the Bible Mm. and behaved the way that you did? Fascinating. Yeah. It's really good stuff. I mean, it is, it is, it is powerful. It will bring, it will bring some people to tears. Oh my gosh. Has that happened in a class? Yeah. Oh my gosh. That's so cool. Wow. Because I mean, I do tend to get, to get into it. As you should, as a hundred. And I, and I think, and I think maybe I wind up preaching a little bit, but that's, that's fine. I'm trying to win the hearts and minds of the children's. (laughs) Yes, we all are. We all are. Absolutely. Well, thank you so, so much for teaching me about someone I had absolutely no knowledge of. I'm very excited. Yeah, my pleasure. When we think about the stories we tell, we might well ask, after listening to today's episode, why don't we tell the story of William Apis? I mentioned at the beginning that we would address the amnesia around Apis's biography, and I think the reasons for this can be traced to a desire to craft a national origin story, one of American exceptionalism. Let me explain. The 20th century marked an explosion in historical works on colonial New England. Historians tended to focus on the unique religious traditions. I mean, how many of you remember being told that pilgrims and Puritans escaped religious persecution and came to the quote-unquote new world to establish an existence built on religious freedom? Right? A lot of you. This generalization overlooks the fact that Congregationalists wanted the freedom to practice their religion. They weren't really interested in allowing others to follow their own religious convictions. Anyway, the original connection between the overgeneralization about religious freedom in New England emerges from the same motivation for the other stories we tell about the region's intellectual legacies, economic diversity, and free labor traditions. 
Throughout the 20th century, these exceptional qualities of New England provided effective tales to frame arguments of American exceptionalism. You may recall from the Thanksgiving special that I mentioned how the city on the hill, initially used to describe colonial New England, became a phrase to describe America. America, a city on a hill that represented goodness and light in comparison to the darkness of a Soviet communist alternative in a Cold War context. Thus, stories of religious toleration and free labor became preferred colonial origins for a country that founded itself on inalienable human rights. In this context, the fact that slavery generally, and native enslavement in particular, was a significant component of colonial New England society was an inconvenient truth, to say the least. Rather than eschewing enslavement practices, New Englanders wholly embraced the practice. In fact, Massachusetts Bay passed the first slave law in the English Atlantic world. This was necessitated by a desire to categorize the hundreds of Pequot captives now serving in colonial households after being captured in a quote-unquote just war. Many Native captives, particularly those that were enslaved during and after King Philip's War, this was the Philip reference by Apis in the introduction to the episode, were not just kept as domestic servants, but they were sold to planters in Virginia and Barbados. Thus, slavery was not an unknown practice or abhorrent in New England. So how does all this connect back to William Apis? We can see the legacies of enslavement and indenturement in Apis' own life. Even though New Englanders were the first to legalize slavery in 1641, subsequent laws sought to keep the status of enslaved people vague. This vagary succeeded in denying Native people their identity and categorized them instead as quote-unquote mulatto. This then allowed for a continued reliance on unfree labor, controlled through the contract process explained in the episode. Such racial characterizations also fitted nicely with myths about banishing Indians. The life of William Apis exemplified these colonial legacies, and because of this, it was easier or more expedient to overlook him. In the 19th century, as efforts to forcibly remove Native people east of the Mississippi reached their zenith, Apis was an uncomfortable reminder of a Nader existence in a region that supposedly solved its Indian problem a century before. And in the 20th century, Apis's writings and speeches belied the origin myths established about the American nation. In this way, the stories we have told about America depended very much on not telling the stories of people like William Apis. But I hope this episode marks a turning point and will encourage a new generation to embrace Apis's life in the stories we tell. Thank you so much for listening. If you're interested in learning more about this topic, check out the recommended reading list on our Instagram account. Our handle is stories underscore we underscore tell underscore podcast. Please join us next time to examine another legacy, another memory, and explore the stories we tell.